Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here worshiping with you all. You know, in many ways, Titus is about what we just sung. The uh, everything that we do, every resolve that we have, every uh, every time we step out in obedience and try to live a faithful Christian life, we are doing it in the shadow of the glorious cross. And in many ways, I mean, that is that is Titus. That is the message of Titus. Live in the shadow of the glorious cross, live out of the truth of the glorious cross. Don't ever forget it. Let everything be established on it, but go out and live in accordance with it. And so that is really, I think, very fitting to consider as we move in once again to another sermon on Paul's epistle to Titus. So last week, we started looking into the passage of Titus that deals with the qualifications of elders, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it is, you know, it's a little strange to be a, an elder preaching about the qualifications of elders. In fact, we were talking a little bit about that afterwards. It's, it's something that just kind of needs to be said is that there's not a single elder in this church who thinks that he has arrived. Not a single elder who thinks that, that we don't daily need God's grace, daily need one another's prayers, daily need one another's shepherding struggling to be good husbands, fathers, and just good Christian men, striving in God's grace to glorify him in the world. So I hope that in uh, me preaching these sermons to you all as an elder, that you don't get the impression that I think that or that the elders as a whole have that impression of themselves. In fact, we struggled as we, as we considered bringing on another elder candidate. We struggled because we thought through, you know, what... What does it look like to ask a man, do you meet these qualifications? I mean, what man being asked that, uh, who who is truly qualified, would would stand up and say, I do, (laughs) you know, I do. Uh, That would would be, I think, a red flag at the very beginning. Uh, But nonetheless, we are called to teach and preach God's word. And so we're called to be true to what this text says and to understand that these are, in fact, qualifications. These are, in fact, criteria. They are prerequisites by which men are brought into this task, this office, this role of elder. And so we began looking at Titus 1, 5 to 9. Go ahead and go there, if you will, in your Bible. Titus 1, 5 to 9. looking at the qualifications for elders, overseers, pastors. Those are all really the same thing. Starting in verse five. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help today. Our sovereign God, our heavenly Father, our loving heavenly Father. What a privilege it is, Lord, just to pray to you today as a, as a people, as, a, as those who've gathered here this morning to worship you together, to, to learn from your word, to sing praises to your name, to interact with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another here today together. Father, it is a a wonderful thing. It is a, a privilege, such an opportunity to be here together and to sit around your word and worship you through your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him. As we see throughout this book, his glorious gospel just shines so bright. We pray that today he will shine brightly as we consider, even in this text, which could be considered sort of a tedious look at qualifications, that we will see the brightness of Christ shining through at, at every stage. And Lord, that we will live and think and read in light of the glorious cross, in the shadow of the glorious cross. 
Father, would you help us today? We ask that your Holy Spirit, who has always attended the preaching of your word, who has always attended as we have come together, we ask that he will once again today be present among us and that he will empower us to preach and to learn, to listen. And God, that what is done here today will bring your name glory and will edify your people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is part two of a set of sermons on this passage entitled, A Gospel Leader. If you'll go ahead and put up that slide for us, Jacob. So last week, we started looking at these five things from this passage, from verses five to nine. We started looking at an elder's significance, an elder's reputation, an elder's home, an elder's character, and an elder's doctrine. Last week, we covered an elder's significance, an elder's reputation, today, we will spend our, our time looking at an elder's home. And next week, we will finish up covering an elder's character and an elder's doctrine. You may think, man, we're spending a lot of time on this, especially elders are thinking, let's get moving. You know, we're spending a little too much time camping out here. What's important? Because remember when we looked at Ephesians 5 and we looked at wives and husbands and we really wanted to camp out and spend ample time on husbands. Uh, we spent... Two sermons on wives, but we wanted to spend ample time on husbands because husbands are, are leaders in their homes and elders are leaders within the church. And one of the things that we see in this passage is that what we find here are, are examples to the flock. So we talked about the fact that this passage is not just to be applied to elders, but it is by extension to be applied to all of God's people who are pursuing a kind of faith and knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness as we were introduced to in that opening verse. And so we want to really take some time here and camp out on these criteria. We're also considering both deacon and elder candidates right now, so I think this is an important time in the life of our church as we move forward with this. So today we look at an elder's home. But before we do that, I think now is probably an appropriate time, probably the most appropriate time to have a little side discussion on the topic of church membership. Since I think this idea of church membership grows out of an elder's significance, as we looked at last week, that Paul is eager that Titus will work to get elders in these churches. And I think there are implications there for what churches are and, and what, who constitutes the church and therefore uh, questions about sheep and shepherds and members and membership. All of this, I think, is kind of, kind of flows out of or grows out of that first idea of an elder's significance, especially as we consider that an elder is a shepherd and a manager or a steward of God's household. That already tells us that we are, we're talking about something that is concrete, that is specific, something that is formal, official, and all of that. So I think right now is a good opportunity for us to go down this road for just a little bit. And as we've been updating our membership, I know that some of you may be wondering, why bother with membership? I mean, isn't that just an unnecessary, isn't that just unnecessary tedium? Going through, and is that just about you know making sure we've got everyone got got numbers and all of that? Well, what's the purpose of having official membership? Why does it matter? And I think the the larger question comes: Why is it even biblical? Is it even biblical to have official membership? So, in an effort to provide a basic response to this question, is church membership biblical? I want to begin our time together today by presenting just a small portion of the material from our membership class. So, for those of you who have attended the membership class, you're like, oh man, we gotta do that again. Well, it's just a little bit, it's just a short little snippet, really, of that. But I do think that this question needs to be answered for all the folks here in our church, those who are here this morning, those who will be listening on podcast. And the reason for that is, if a person is, is at the beginning think, questioning whether membership is valid, then they're not gonna come to the membership class and therefore not going to hear any of this. So I think it's helpful to maybe present this in a larger, more general forum. So just to give you an update before we do that, we had 22 at our last membership class, and I just want to encourage all of you to come to the next one. We'll be, we'll be scheduling another one. We had one back in late 
April, early May, and then we've just had our second one, and we'll have one, at least one more, but likely two more in this calendar year. So I just want to encourage those of you who've been considering membership at Four Corners to come along to these classes. A number of you have already signed the covenant, and so we're working now to go ahead and schedule our first pledge service, and that's where basically those who have signed the covenant will come up here and just be asked a series of questions, and before the body, we'll, we'll pledge to the, to, to the body that I'm, I'm committing. I have I formally signed the membership covenant, and I'm committing to this local body of believers. So that, for those of you who are like, what is going on? What's the next step? Uh, in this process, um, that is it. So if you've already signed the membership covenant, that's what lies ahead, so just be on the lookout for that being scheduled. We also have a handful of folks who are talking with me about being baptized, some who were converted a while ago, one in particular who's been recently converted, and so we'll be also thinking through scheduling that prior to those membership pledges. So I just wanna give you that updated information. I think that's important to kind of know where we're at on that. So, a side discussion. We're asking the question, is church membership biblical? And I'll go through this quickly this morning. First, what do we, what do we mean by church membership? And first off, what, what in the world are we talking about? And here's a definition given by Jonathan Lehman in his book, Church Membership. He says this, it is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. If you want me to send you that by email or give that to you, I will. It's a little cumbersome, but there you go. That is a pretty extensive, pretty full definition of church membership. Another one given by, by another author named Eric Lane in Members One of Another. He says this, those actions whereby a Christian attaches himself to a particular gathering of God's people in a given place and becomes enrolled on its register of members. And so I think if you were to take these two definitions and distill them down to a basic idea, a basic set of ideas, I think it would be this, that church membership is formal, official commitment. It involves that. Not informal. Yeah, I've been there. But it's formal, official commitment. It's documented, and it deepens the relationship. And so at this point, I haven't demonstrated anything, but there's been a couple guys who've defined church membership. There you go. But now what I want to ask is the question, is this biblical? This thing that we've just looked at, church membership, is it biblical? And I want to give you three clear indicators of this concept of church membership in the New Testament. So here we go, three things. This, let me just reemphasize this, just scratches the surface. It's not an exhaustive list, there's much more to this, but this just really gets in on a basic level to is church membership in the New Testament. So first, those who belong to the church in the New Testament are clearly identifiable, clearly identifiable. The shepherds, can identify the sheep. So 1 Peter 5, 1 to 2 says this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. There is a specific group of people that is among you, he's talking to the elders, and Peter is saying shepherd those people. There's delineation here. There is a specific group of people. And we read in Hebrews 13, 17 that they keep watch over souls. And what's interesting about this is that elders or shepherds or overseers or pastors are called to keep watch over individual souls. What this means is that there has to be an attentiveness to the specific life issues of individual people. You can't simply fly over a swath of people and say, yeah, I'm caring for these souls. There has to be an attentiveness, a specific attentiveness to the issues of life, to the spiritual questions and the doubts and, and even the sins and the struggles and temptations and marital issues and child-rearing issues and co-worker issues that are going on in the lives of God's people. Individual souls are at stake. 
And so we have here that shepherds can identify individual souls for whom they will give an account. It's specific. The sheep can identify the shepherds. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders. And so there are shepherds who say, these are my sheep that the Lord has given. I am an under shepherd. These are Christ's sheep, but Christ has put me over these sheep to shepherd them. These are the sheep whom God has entrusted to my care. And the sheep know their shepherds. They're able to say, those are the shepherds that God has given to instruct and to hold me accountable in my Christian life. Everyone can identify one another. You know, it's amazing when you read throughout the New Testament all of this one anothering that's going on, especially in the Gospel of John. Love one another, love one another. But we see this flushed out throughout the New Testament that we're called to be one anothering. And so we get Galatians 6 2, bear one another's burdens. James 5 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Romans 12 10, love one another with brotherly affection and 1 Peter 4.10, serve one another. So the question is, if people are just sort of transients, you know, kind of coming in and out, maybe attend for a while, not attend for a while, attend here for a while, attend there for a while, attend here and there at the same time and so forth, and there's just no accountability, there's no concreteness to their belonging in a specific body, how does any of this happen? How do sheep get to know shepherds? How do shepherds get to know sheep? And how do sheep get to know one another? And so that's the first reason. Those who belong to the church are clearly identifiable. So yes, I think church membership is biblical for at least this reason. Secondly, there were written lists of names in the church. This is something that may surprise you. It's not something that I've always known or sort of grew up knowing, but there are written lists of people in the church, similar to what we might call a membership role. And we talk about membership roles. So 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 10 says this. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and so on and so forth. So we see that the overseers, the shepherds, are responsible for delineating individual names, not only within the whole church, but but individuals within that larger list who fit into other categories or subcategories. There's the the, the big category of church, sheep, and then there are subcategories of which widows is one. And so this is a second reason, I think, church membership is biblical. And then finally this morning, as we kind of move back away from this side discussion, the practice of church discipline shows that belonging to the church means something concrete. And here's specifically what I want to tell you. You cannot be officially removed from something to which you do not officially belong. And the end result of church discipline as we encounter it in the New Testament is that if church discipline, restorative, loving, gentle, kind, gracious church discipline reaches to the point where a person refuses to to repent, refuses to turn away from their sin, then they are to to be pushed out of the church. As it says here, purge the evil person from among you, 1 Corinthians 5, 13. We also read in Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then here's what Jesus says. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so we see First and Second Corinthians as an example of that working itself out. There's a brother who is, who is pushed out. He is excommunicated, the sort of historic word throughout church history. But then he is lovingly restored and brought back in upon repentance. And Paul tells the believers in Second Corinthians, bring this brother back in lovingly, graciously. Shepherd him back into the fold now that he has repented. But here's the main idea. Removing someone officially from the body presupposes that they officially belong to the body. That's something concrete. That's something specific. That is, I would argue, church membership. 
So these are just a few reasons why we believe, so I'm done now, these are just a few reasons why we believe that church membership is both biblical and important. So for some of you who are still not convinced, you're saying, "Mm -mm, I I don't see it, I don't see it quite yet. Come and talk to us, come and talk to the elders, let's talk through that, let's walk through that, but don't just sort of continue to be just an attendee here or there or come some and, and not be in a place where you can be held accountable, where you can be shepherded, where you can be overseen. This is God's means of caring for your soul. God's means, not, not my means, not the other elders' means. This is God's way that he cares for the souls of his people. So take this, I pray that you will take this seriously. Okay, so an elder's home, that's where we are at today. As we look at Titus chapter one, verses five to nine. An elder's home. Look at verse six. That's where we're at. Verse six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, one of the things that you need to know before we kind of tread into this is that this is a very difficult verse. Interpretively speaking, I mean, this is a verse that is, is just filled with disagreement among commentators. So there's a lot of discussion over what these ideas mean, and I'll give you the two specifically that upon which there's lots and lots of discussion because it's just a, it just seems for some to be, well, it could be this or it could be that. But today I'm going to sort of lay out for you what I think the text is saying here as we talk about husband of one wife, as we talk about children being believers or faithful, which word is in view there, and you can go on and study that and read about that for yourself. But I want to look at two things as we look at an elder's home. If you go ahead with the next slide, Jacob. An elder's home. Two things that have to be considered here. It's very clear from the text. The man and his wife, the man and his children. The man and his wife, the man and his children. So verse six says, if anyone is above reproach, and then we get this, the husband of one wife. This can also be translated a man of one woman or a one woman man. It can be translated fairly according to the Greek text. It can be translated fairly any of these ways. So what in the world does this mean as a qualification for elders. In fact, this idea, husband of one wife, appears only here in the pastoral epistles. It's in Titus. By the way, First and Second Timothy and Titus as a body within the New Testament are called the pastoral epistles. And we find this qualification for elders in First Timothy chapter three. We find it here in Titus and we find it for deacons as well in First Timothy Chapter three. So what in the world does this mean? Husband of one wife. Well, there's been much, much debate, as I indicated before, but I think the basic meaning is that a man, if he is married, must be faithful to his wife. He must be a one-woman kind of man. So before we get into that, notice that I said this, if he is married. So we know when we come to this from elsewhere in the scriptures, we know that it is not necessary that an elder be married. Some churches teach that. I think that's wrong. It is not true that we should require that an elder in the church be married. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul is is telling believers that it would be good if they stayed single. Why? Why? So that they could devote themselves entirely to to the Lord's work. So it seems, to me, it seems to me it would be quite strange for the Apostle Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 7, it would be great if you, could devote, if you could devote your life exclusively to the Lord's work, sort of one of the ways, one of the most obvious ways that one does this is to serve in leadership in this way in a local church. It would be odd for him to say that and then to say that one had to be married. Also, if you take that line of reasoning, that as we read this, that he, the husband of one wife, therefore an elder must be married, then you have to go a step further from the next part of the verse and you have to say that he must also have children because it says having children. And then you must also say that he has more than one because it's plural, having children. 
So you would be forced to say, if you're going to be consistent, and you must be, you'd be forced to say that an elder must be married with more than one child. Well, I think we're, it's obvious that that is an incorrect way to think about this text. I think 1 Corinthians 7 makes that clear for us. Paul is simply dealing with the normal state of things. Paul is simply dealing with the typical situation. Most men in the church who would be qualified to serve as elders are going to be married. Just the typical situation that we find in life among human beings in the context of the church. So I understand this text to be about marital fidelity in general. Now I'm getting at what's what's this talking about? Husband of one wife, what does this mean? I understand it to be talking about marital fidelity, faithfulness in marriage in general terms, which is contrary to two other prevailing views. Two other views that you often find about this, this phrase. One of those views is that this phrase, husband and one wife, is talking primarily, or it is about, polygamy. Makes sense, right? Husband of one wife, not many. Husband of one wife. And that is, that has, that was Calvin's view. That is the view of a number of others. It's probably not the prevailing view among evangelical commentators, but it is a view that's out there today. But this becomes less likely when we look at 1 Timothy 5.9. Remember, I read this passage to you a little bit, of go, a little bit ago. 1 Timothy 5.9, where we were talking about widows. And in that passage, it says this. Listen to these words carefully. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Well, what's interesting there is it's a parallel. It's the exact same phrase. Except it's switched. Instead of husband of one wife, it's wife of one husband. And so a number of commentators have pointed out, and I think rightfully so, that we should interpret these ideas together. It's a unique expression. As, as Andreas Kustenberger calls it, an idiom, which, which means it's just a, a way of speaking that is unique to Paul in this particular situation. It, it's, it's something that is unique. It is it has a particular meaning that cannot be boiled down to what the specific words actually say. And so we get this idea of the wife of one husband. Now this phrase used for women cannot be about having multiple husbands because women did not have multiple husbands in the ancient world. We might think that yes, polygamy was practiced among Greeks and Romans and polygamy was practiced among Jews, but it wasn't, it wasn't really widespread during the time in which Paul is writing this letter, but we know that women having multiple husbands was not practiced at all. This was not a practice in the ancient world. And so you can't say that the one phrase, husband of one wife, refers specifically to polygamy when the wife of one husband can't refer to what's called polyandry or having multiple husbands. So for that reason, I don't think this is the best way to interpret this passage. Okay, so a second view, and this is more important, I think, for our purposes. A second view is that this qualification has to do with not being remarried. This would exclude those who have remarried due to death or divorce. And so, you may have heard in church before that if a man has been divorced, he cannot serve as a deacon or an elder because the deacon qualification and elder qualification, husband of one wife, would exclude a divorced person or a person whose spouse died and then he remarried. It would exclude that person from serving in this role because it says husband of one wife. Well, I don't think this is how we should take this either. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 5, 9. That passage, wife of one husband. As we've just looked at, this passage says that those on the official widow list have to have been the wife of one husband or a one man woman. Now this is interesting, just a few verses later. So you're reading that, 1 Timothy 5, 9. Try to stay with me because I think we need to, we need to work through this. You, you read that in 1 Timothy 5, 9. A woman must be the wife of one husband and then it goes on to talk about, in 1 Timothy 5.14, Paul encourages younger widows to marry. So picture this. A young woman, say age 25, her husband dies. 
And Paul's encouragement to the churches is that she go and remarry. He thinks that's a good, wise course of action, that a widow ought to do that. Now, then imagine this. Young woman, 25, godly, loves the Lord, serves the church, faithful to her husband. Her husband dies. She remarries. He dies. She remarries again. He dies. Then she gets to be over the age of 65 at some point, and Paul says, let widows be enrolled if they are over the age of 60 years of age and have been the wife of one husband. Well, she would be excluded. Why would Paul, that's my point, why would Paul tell young widows to remarry when in doing so, they would later be disqualified in the event that their second husband dies, they would later be disqualified and be unable to be on the widow list. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So, I think we're left with the conclusion that this is not about one's marital history, as Brian Chapel says. This is not about looking back and seeing, has this person been married more than, more than once in the past? It's not specifically about multiple wives in the present, although polygamy would be excluded outright, per Ephesians 5. It's not about multiple wives over time. It's about something else. So what is it about? It is about, as I said before, one's present faithfulness and purity with regard to his wife. Husband of one wife, he is a one woman kind of man. That is what we're told here. And because divorce has often been used as a disqualifier for men within the church, and you may have, have been in a situation where you were in a church where that was a disqualifier, or you know other believers who outright say, no, if the man's been divorced, he cannot serve as a deacon, he cannot serve as an elder, which is one of the reasons I'm spending so much time on this. I want to give you this quote from D.A. Carson, which I think really captures a key point about it. It's a little bit long, but just bear with me. This is what he says. Some believe this teaches that an elder cannot be a divorcee who has remarried. The Bible certainly warns against divorce in many ways. But it is also very important not to make divorce the worst sin on the horizon. The unforgivable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit, some have tried to impose a prohibition against anyone becoming a minister of the gospel who has ever been divorced at any time in his life. So he might, he might have been a murderer and then paid his debt to society, got out of prison and been converted and become a minister of the gospel. We see that frequently. Guys who are changed come out of prison. They go on to, Jennifer and I are watching a documentary on the mafia in the 1970s. And one of the individuals in that was converted, became a believer, and talks about kind of his testimony in that video. We see that. We see that all the time, especially effective in prison ministries. So he might have been a murderer and then paid his debt to society, got out of prison and been converted and become a minister of the gospel. But if he's been divorced, he cannot enter the ministry, which somehow projects an image of divorce as the unforgivable sin. Where divorce does disqualify, so here's the balance. I think this is the reason I quote this, because there's such good balance in what Carson is saying here. Where divorce does disqualify a person from ministry, it seems to me is bound up with a category we've already discussed, an elder must be blameless. And that's exactly what we read in this passage. Look at the verse. It says in verse six, if anyone is above reproach, comma, the husband of one wife. So we know that it is very closely attached, whatever we're to make of it, it's very closely attached to the man's reputation. An elder must be blameless. It's a credibility issue, he goes on to say. Or again, a little further on, he must be able to govern his own home well. You worry about someone whose life has cracked up in his marriage, and then three months later, he feels he's qualified to be back in ministry. You could put there eldership. He has repented after all, and the gospel is all about forgiveness, isn't it? Clearly, the Bible has something more stringent to say than that. Divorce is not the ultimate sin 
nor is it the unforgivable sin. And I like what he says here because this is important. Yet, it may disqualify. It may disqualify a person from ministry precisely because it destroys so much of a person's credibility. It destroys so much of his believability. There is more I could say, but divorce simply is not what this qualification is about. So, you see here, Carson, I think, is rightly connecting it to above reproach. And he's saying this too, that it's, an, it's not a non-issue. So if you're going, if we're considering a candidate for elder and we're talking with that brother, he's been divorced, there are all sorts of questions that's, that surround that. We want to know, is this divorce sort of looming over this man's life? His, what is his present relationship to his present wife? Uh, what about the, a history of confession of sin and repentance over the marital issues that preceded this time in his life? We're talking about all of that because anything that casts a shadow of doubt over a man's credibility, over a man's ability to be above reproach or blameless is potentially disqualifying as we find that above reproach is the blanket umbrella idea that we find throughout this passage. Okay, so what does this look like? In practice, for an elder candidate, an elder, or any of us, remember that this is for all of us, but I think specifically we have to apply this to elders. So what does it look like? What would we be looking for if a candidate said, I, I want to be an elder, and we begin to go down that process? What sort of questions would we be asking? What kinds of things would we want to know? And even more, those of us who are elders, what kinds of things ought we to be pursuing as we rely on the Lord's grace? Well, the first thing, I think, is his interactions. We're asking questions about this man's interactions. Are his interactions with women careful? So frequently, we find that these the men get caught in careless situations. Men put themselves in situations that jeopardize their integrity or that leave open a doorway for there to be questions about relationships that they have with women in the church or women in their workplace or women just that they know in general, perhaps family friends. What is this man's interaction with other women? When he, acts, when he interacts with women, is he flirty? Is he flirtatious? Does he sort of get a little bit too close and a little bit too warm with other women, women other than his wife or if he is a single man? Is this a, a kind of promiscuous type of man, a, a man who is non-committal, a man who is sort of floating around, flirting with women? Is this the kind of attitude? This is the kind of thing we're looking for. This is the kind of thing that a church should be looking out for, should be watching, should be questioning if we're going down this with an elder candidate. It's also the sort of thing that we should be guarding against as elders who are already serving. 1 Timothy 5, 2 says that we are to relate with younger women as sisters in all purity. And what's interesting about that is first. And Timothy is a young man. So Timothy is a young man potentially shepherding younger women, women his own age, women who are a little bit younger. And so Paul explicitly tells him, look, when you see a young woman, and this is the way it is for elders in the church, when we see women, we think sister, sister, sister in the Lord, sister in the Lord, all purity. His eyes are controlled. His affections are not bubbling up with lust. This is the kind of thing that is implied here. And what about his devotion? You know, it, you might be able to look at these qualifications and say, okay, so as long as a man's eyes are in check, as long as his affections are in check, as long as his interactions are in check, then that's okay, but there's a positive dimension to this qualification. And I think it's this. This is also a man who is devoted to his wife. A one woman kind of man. Not just defined by what he negatively, what he avoids, what he doesn't do, but defined by who he is and what he does do. And what he does is devotes himself to his wife. He delights in her. This is one of the reasons why when we go through the process, we ask that any candidate comes and, and talks with the elders with his 
wife. And this is not very comfortable oftentimes for the wife. And we try to make this as comfortable as we can. But, uh, you know, it doesn't always work out. But, I mean, it's, something, it's very important. It's very important because the marriage matters. The relationship between this man and his wife matter to Paul, matter to the Lord, and should matter to us. Proverbs 5, 18 to 19 says this, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Does this define you? Does it define me? Imperfectly always. But this is the sort of question that must be posed to a man who will be or would be or is an elder. Cherishing and cultivating his marriage. That is the positive side of things. And so we go back to our series on Ephesians. We look there at all of the things that are involved in a a God-honoring marriage. Remember this, elders are to be a pattern. They are to be an example. And so the pattern of Ephesians 5, 25 to 33 is particularly important for those who would serve the church as elders. So that's the man and his wife. Let's look as we finish up this morning at the man and his children. The man and his children. Look at verse six again. Verse six. It goes on to say, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, many agree that the correct translation of this word is faithful, not believers. We see here in verse six that that his children are believers. It's the same Greek word. It can be translated faithful. And even within Titus and Timothy and pastoral epistles, it's translated both ways. It It can be faithful or it can be believing or believers. So which is it? Must these children be converted believers in Jesus Christ? Or is it more general than that? Is it understood as faithful? I think, as many have pointed out, that it has to do here with faithful. And I'll kind of go on to describe why I think that is the case. So the main qualification here, I think, is that a man's children are faithful, trustworthy, under his authority and leadership. I think the first place we go to figure out what's meant here, is it believing or is it faithful, is we go to the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, 4. And here's what Paul says. Paul says nothing in 1 Timothy about children being believers, like converted Christians necessarily. But this is what he does say. 1 Timothy 3, 4, he says that an elder must manage or an overseer must manage his own household well. And then it says this, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And so we are talking about children under his supervision. So let me just say this. What's in view here, first and foremost, we have to understand, are children that are under the care and supervision of the man involved. So we know that children grow up They leave home, they make their own decisions. They have a will with which they turn towards self and idols or they turn towards God. And we know, I know in talking with many people within this church, that's a struggle. Grown children who have not turned towards the living God, away from idols. We are talking here about children who are under the supervision of their father called children. Our text goes on to describe what it means for them to be faithful under his authority. They are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So what do these words mean, debauchery or insubordination? Essentially, wild living or rebelliousness. These are the two ideas that we get in this passage. And if you want to understand what this first word, debauchery, just sounds like a horrible, all-encompassing word, debauchery. If you want to understand what this word is, means you have to go to 1 Peter 4, verses three to four. This is what Peter says. This is a definition of debauchery in some ways. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, listen to these descriptors. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Same word that we have in our text. 
So understanding debauchery is a, is a big term. At the core of it is, is just reckless, alcohol-driven, substance abuse-driven living. It's reckless. It's, it's entirely undisciplined, disorderly. So the man is disordered, the child is disordered individually, and the child is disordered, not under the authority of his father. If you want to kind of pull this together and see what this would look like, Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21 says this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his city. Listen to the way these parents describe their son. And this, I think, encompasses what we find here. This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. Some of you teenagers are quite glad that you don't live in ancient Israel. I am glad going through my teenage years that I did not live in ancient Israel under the old covenant. But this is what happened. And it was just, it was right. But the point I want you to see here is that this describes really the kind of children that do not match the above reproach character of a person who will be an elder. So how do we apply this as we finish up this morning? How do we apply this idea to ourselves? Well, the focus is on the whole, the pattern, and the reputation. As I just indicated the last one. The whole, the pattern, and the reputation. The whole family, all the children. Let's say that a, a man has 10 kids. 10 kids, 10 children, various ages, and you know, maybe one, two. There's some serious issues in this, in this vein. Would that disqualify a man? Not necessarily. It's about the whole. It's about the whole of the family. It's about the trajectory of the family. It's also about the pattern of the family. And here's the big question. Is this an Ephesians 6-4 home? That's the big question. Is this an Ephesians 6-4 home where children are not being provoked and are being brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? If it's an Ephesians 6-4 home over which God has put this man then that's an indication that he is qualified to be in this same position in God's church. So faithful implies that a child is not actively rebelling against the father's teaching as well. So I wanna read this to you from Brian Chapel. He says, Paul's terminology is not so much requiring us to examine a professed testimony of our kids as to evaluate whether the child, in a manner appropriate for his age, is exhibiting evidence of consistent biblical discipline and spiritual nurture. In other words, in that child's life, as it stands, is this a life, is this a child that's sort of emanating out of a culture where there is the discipline and instruction of the Lord? That's really what's in view here. The reputation, an elder must be an example, he must be a witness. And so that is why Blamelessness is so important. Now there's a danger here that I want to highlight. Every pastor faces this danger. Every elder, shepherd, everyone faces this danger. In fact, church people in general face this danger. And it's this. We can fall into keeping up a persona. A persona that we have it all together a persona of godliness, a persona that we are great managers of our homes and that, and that everything is, is right and good and orderly, perfect. We can do that. We can fall into that. When it's never the case, it's never the case. We're all frail. We're all broken. But we can fall into a trap of keeping up a persona for church folks. And this will raise our children to resent us, and the church, because they see that we're not who we pretend to be. Men who put up a show in front of the church because they know these qualifications are true, 
And they know that these things matter. We can't apologize for these qualifications. We can't dismiss these qualifications. We can't act like they don't exist or explain them away. We have to deal with them. And so the trap that we fall into is you put up a persona in front of church people, in front of other Christians, because you know that you must meet these qualifications. Pushing your children into a mold so that they grow up to hate you and the church at the worst to resent God's people, to resent the household of God. May no elder ever do that. One, because it's all about God's grace. Number two, it's not about being perfect. It is about being faithful to the Lord and growing in his grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is about being authentic. A man who does not need to be forgiven of sin is not a man who understands the grace of God. An elder must understand the grace of God. And unless an elder is honest and transparent about his sin and his struggles and his temptations and he's being shepherded, being held accountable, he'll never understand the grace of God because he's trying to do it on his own. And so this is a trap that we must all avoid. And I think too often we may fall into. So why is this so important? The Puritans called the home a little church. The home, a little church. And this is precisely what is in view when Paul tells Timothy, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's the reason for everything we've looked at today. So an elder's home is important. His relationship with his wife and his relationship with his children, both important criteria for determining who should carry out this task of shepherd, elder, overseer, manager of God's church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Father, as we saw when we looked at Ephesians 5.18, Everything flows out of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that we receive your Spirit by grace alone. You regenerate hearts at your good pleasure. And God, we know that nothing we do, no character trait that we ever exhibit, nothing is on account of us or any goodness in us or any intrinsic value in us. We know that apart from you, we have nothing. And Lord, we are stained filled with sin, ensnared at every place in our will and affections and mind and behavior at every level with sin apart from the grace that you give us in Christ by your Holy Spirit. So God, we thank you for the righteous standing that we have before you through Jesus, clothed in his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us and conforms us daily into his image, God. Would you bless our church? Would you be with us who serve as elders? Would you help us, Lord, to grow in godliness? Would you help us grow as shepherds? Would you help us to to genuinely and truly deal with the sin in our lives and to repent? In Christ's name, we pray all these things. And Lord, we ask that you will help us lead and shepherd well. Help us do it in your strength and not our own. And Lord, I pray that men would desire the work of the ministry, that men would desire to serve as elders, and that you would put these qualifications up before every heart and every mind, that we would all pursue godly homes and godly lives, that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.